And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every uh, Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. And uh don't know if I said it, but this is Finding a Voice, Spoken Word Program. Yeah, I think I did. And <laughs> starting to ring a bell. Well, let's just do it again, just in case. Spoken Word Program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfr.com. In the first hour, uh, from an October 24th event at Novel Idea Bookstore and emceed by Christine McLeod, you'll hear Pamela Malloy reading from and launching her new book called The Deserters. Following that, uh, from a November 15th launch and reading event, again held at Novel Idea, you'll hear a reading by Carolyn Smart and then a reading by Susan Gillis as she, Kingston, launches her new collection of poetry called Yellow Cranes. And then in the second hour from a November 21st uh, launch event, again held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Lindy Machewski uh, reading from and discussing her latest book, uh, uh, called Out of Ontario Kitchens. This first, though, are the usual hourly announcements. Some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language. All is played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Uh, we'll have a bit of time at the end of the second hour today to share some announcements, mostly calls, but some upcoming events. So let's just get right into it up first from the October 24th event at Novel Idea uh, Bookstore. Uh, a, you're going to hear, as introduced by MC Christine McLeod, uh, Pamela Malloy, reading from and launching her new book called The Deserters. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming. My name is Christine McLeod, and I'm here to introduce Pamela Malloy, who's going to read to us from her debut novel, The Deserters. Um, but before we begin, I just wanted to thank you all for coming, and also to um, um, send a big thank you to Oscar and Joanna for hosting tonight, and for, as usual, um, making us all feel really welcome, and just in general, for this gem of a bookstore. So uh, Pamela, uh, they have a nice independent bookstore in uh, Waterloo called Wordsworth. Is it Wordsworth? <laughs> But they don't have wine at the at the reading, so she's going to have a talk to him, and they don't have the really great snacks yeah. that Joanna makes as well, so there's going to be a bit of a mutiny there. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about Pamela, and um, she has given me permission to start a few rumors about her tonight, so um, you can see if you can work out <laughs> which things are the truth and which things maybe were things that I made up. Um, this is Pamela's debut novel, The Deserters. Uh, it came out in April, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Pamela is, uh, um, when she's awake, I think she must be doing something to do with writing um, because she not <coughs> only has written her own novel, uh, first novel, and is writing a second one uh, right now, but she's also the editor of The New Quarterly, which is one of the best literary magazines in Canada. Um, and she is also creative director, is that your title? Yep. For the Wild Writers Literary Festival in Waterloo and Kitchen held in Waterloo and Kitchener. Um, and that's not this weekend, but the weekend afterwards. So I'm really surprised that they let her travel <laughs> at this point. <laughs> there's probably a lot going on, right? Um, so Pamela has lived, uh, she lives in Kitchener now with her um, husband and daughter. But you've also lived in Poland. I was interested mm -hmm. to read, I didn't know that. And the UK where you studied, right? 
I studied, yes, yeah. there for, I worked there for a number of years. Right, in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. And um, your book is actually set, I noticed, in three different countries. Are these the same ones, or are you going to tell us um, more in a minute? No, I added Spain to the... Yeah, to Spain, okay. <laughs> All right, very good. Um, yeah, so, um, so Pamela not only reads a lot of other people's work, but uh, she's going to read to us from her own. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you is a little bit about her secret uh, hidden talents. She's a professional fire eater, <laughs> and she also made her own outfit tonight. <laughs> so please welcome Pamela <laughs> Well, I'm obviously far more talented than I ever imagined. Thank you, Christine. And yes, thank you, Oscar. This is a, I will be talking to Dave at Wordsworth immediately. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is my debut novel, as Christine said. Thank you for that lovely introduction, <laughs> truth or not. Um, and this is a, a novel that I've been working on for a number of years. Um, and it's, it's about um, a soldier named Dean who has crossed over. He's been to the Iraq War, and he does not want to go back for a second deployment. So he crosses over from Maine into Canada and camps out on the backwoods of uh, New Brunswick um, to escape. And he is camping on the, this property that is owned by uh, Eugenie, who is a woman who, who has inherited the property. And she is there to kind of set up this homestead uh, with her husband. The problem is that her husband is actually uh, a, a specialized carpenter who's doing uh, an apprenticeship apprenticeship in Spain. So she's really left to her own devices to, to set up the homestead. So when, when Dean appears, um, it appears that he is the help that she really needs to, to get things going. So um, I... As I said, I, I started this this novel about six or seven years ago. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the backstory before I start uh, um, re doing a reading. Um, I started about six or seven years ago, and when I when I was getting finished, when I was finishing up the novel, I started really thinking about where it had come from because um, I don't have a military background. I don't have any kind of experience of what I describe. I was interested in exploring the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but I also don't have an experience of that. Um, so I, I really had to kind of think about where this had come from, and. I, I've identified sort of three strands where I've, I've been influenced. Um, and the first one goes by, way back to uh, when I was a teenager in New Brunswick. Um, and my my best friend was working at the Hotel Beausjour as a li as a uh, lifeguard, um, and this was at a time when you know these hotels had lifeguards, and I would go and keep her company because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> hardly mm -hmm. anybody came, and we would do you know hang out. We learned to smoke menthol cigarettes. We would order lobster rolls from, from room service. Um, there was not a lot going on. But I, one day there was a man came uh, and he said he was a deserter. He was a, he had, had he'd left the, the Vietnam War. And this was something that seemed so odd to me. I mean, I had heard about the Vietnam War. The war was over, but I had heard about it in the news. Um, and the fact that he was American, and the fact that he had he had crossed over to the to Canada to escape the war, just seemed just really interesting to me. Um, but I didn't do anything with it. I just kind of parked it for a number of years. But just the idea of it was, was obviously um, stayed with me. 
Um, and then fast forward to 2003, we were living in England, um, and my husband had a postdoc in Illinois, so we moved there for a year. And um, the Iraq War was very was very present there, and we were living in a, a, a town of, of very liberal thinking and you know people fighting for peace, but everywhere else around was you know very pro-war. So um, it was a really interesting environment to be in, and so it was very much on the on the tip of everybody's tongue the discussion. Um, and we met a, a, a grad student who was married, had two kids, one on the way, and he had joined the um, the reserves. And this was a way for him to finance his education. Um, I don't think he ever expected to be going to war. Um, and he, uh, I, I actually don't know whether he saw active duty, but the idea that someone would, would sign up and be a reluctant soldier was also something that I thought a lot about because he had joined for one reason, not necessarily, I mean, it was always a possibility, but uh, the fact that he, he might have gone to see active duty was the idea of the reluctant soldier. Um, the third uh, kind of strand was um, I do have a very large family um, and I do have one cousin in uh, the US who is actually a soldier um, and we had not crossed paths for a number of years um, and but I've been following his his his, his travels um, and he was actually in an accident in the Iraq war in 2004 his Humvee uh, struck um, an IED, and his other soldier that was in the, the car with him was killed. He was badly injured. He still suffers from physical injuries to this day, um, and most significantly, he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and has been very vocal about it and also has done a lot of work with um, veteran, uh, what is it, veteran affairs and the, the Veteran Association in the U.S. to help soldiers who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So it happened that our lives crossed around 2008 or 2009 after we had recovered. We had gone to a family Christmas together, so we were able to talk about um, how what what post-traumatic stress disorder meant to him and his experience. Um, he no longer can drive on a highway. He has a lot of uh, things that are triggers. And as a matter of fact, he's now gone back. He's in the hospital and... Um, in Florida at a clinic because I've discovered this many years later that there's actually been some brain damage and some other shrapnel that they're trying to deal with uh, you know so many so, so much longer after the the actual incident so anyway I I, I didn't uh, incorporate his story with into the book but I, I what it really made me realize is the importance of, of uh, PTSD and the need to talk about it so so that was that's the backstory of how I I came to to the deserters. Um, so I um, I'll do two readings um, and I'll give you a little sort of a flavor of of uh, Eugenie and Michael. Michael is her husband, so I don't think that it really needs it's it's towards the er, the the beginning of the book. Um, the first scene is is really just Eugenie is on the farm. She's already started to uh, have Dean come into her, you know, to start to help, and she, she she gets in touch with Michael. So I will dive in. Eugenie had been at her bedroom window when Dean stepped through the sprawling bushes at the edge of the woods that morning, peering through curtains that barely concealed her. 
She saw him brush himself down, saw his arms swinging vigorously against the morning chill as he walked to the house. It had been an hour since Michael's call, and she hadn't been able to fall back asleep. It's me, he'd whispered when she mumbled into the telephone. Did I wake you? I was just getting up. She rolled over and closed her eyes. You okay? I'm in the studio. Eugenie, Eugenie pictured Michael sitting at his workbench, the whitewashed walls filled with sketches and fo- photographs of marquetry and furniture designs, notes pinned to the lamp clamped to the table. Their house in Spain was near the top of the village, and Michael's workshop even higher, along a goat path that led to the shed he'd bought from a farmer when they'd moved there. He'd had windows put in in order to offer natural light, shutters to keep the heat out and the electricity so that he was able to work late into the night. How was your work going? Better. Oh? I had a few glitches. I'm still trying to work them out. Eugenie was silent for a moment. She lay back on her pillow and watched the curtain ripple in the breeze. She thought of Concher and what it would be like to be there now with Michael. It seemed too long since they'd been together. She was losing the memory of his touch. The time spent in the village that lay crouched in the mountains near the Alpayaras, faint traces of lemon in the air, the almond trees, the olive groves, seemed a portal away from the life she now led. More than once it occurred to her that they should never have moved to such a place, a place that would capture Michael's imagination and leave her outside it all. Michael? Yes? When are you coming back? In this second of hesitation, she heard a rush of water in the background that marked the irrigation system of the Spanish village. She closed her eyes to isolate the sound, like a dam unleashed. Day and night, a gate opened somewhere in the village, dictated by a rigid timetable, the water gushing to one garden, then the lock shutting down and the water rerouted to the next. They had been charmed in those early days, sitting out on the grassy ledge, their only outdoor space. They'd bring out a bottle of wine, their books, perhaps a game to pass the time. Their bare feet resting in wild time, the view of the Sierra Nevada mountains in the distance, and the water funneling here and there every half hour, according to a system that seemed both antiquated and environmentally sound. Now, with the burst of water lengthening the silence, she no longer wished to be in Concher, with its impossible twisting roads leading to the entrance of the village, the constant climbing and descending as they made their way through the streets, even their house built into a cave that backed into the mountain, the bathroom wall chiseled from rock, was more a place with potential, the plans to renovate it remaining on the drawing board. He detailed for her some supplies he needed to locate, and then asked quickly about the farm. Michael, when will you be coming home, she repeated. Soon, my love, soon. The assurance that he would soon be there had kept her steady these past months, allowed her to continue to work on the, to work on the place as if nothing was wrong. The winter had taken its toll, she knew. Her nerves were frayed. She kept telling herself that it was just a temporary situation, but somehow that didn't make up for the endless nights when silence threatened to drive her mad. If she could just keep thinking logically, acting rationally, she would manage. Hiring Dean was a start. She had to keep a hold on things. It was not just the wind whistling through the cracks, the smoking stove, the creaks and moans of a house that had survived more than a hundred winters but had been left to rot the last five. There was more to the place than that, and Michael knew it when he convinced her they should take up the place and make a go of it. 
The place has ghosts, she told him, but he was a man who tended to see what was before him, so he dismissed her, telling her the dead don't haunt. When, Mike, when Eugenie had hung up the telephone, she realized that she'd forgotten to tell Michael about Dean. Then, from the window, she watched Dean go down to the fence and survey the posts, then kick them one after another. At least another month, maybe two. That's what Michael had promised. She pulled on her jeans, threw a sweater over her head, and ran a brush through her hair. Getting the fence fixed would make her feel better, she reasoned as she went downstairs, as though by mending the fenced fence, she too would be rendered stronger. So, this is Eugenie struggling to make a go of it while her husband is in Spain. Um, and I'll just read another passage with Dean. Uh, so Dean is now living in the, in the backwoods um, and has just started to do some work. So he's... He's, he's, he's just starting to get himself into uh, back into a community with her. Um, the, first, the, first sent, the first section is a dream sequence, which I'll start with. They were coming. Dean felt it in his body, felt his heart lurch and pound like a dog fighting a leash. He smelled the air burning, not smoke but rubber, the stench sickening. He crouched under a tree, the desert gone. He was in a jungle, shielded by the sunshade of light, lush green leaves overhead, fluttering against the light. He put his gun down, dropped to his knees, then the sky exploded with the roar of helicopters. They hovered over him, their blades like a racing heart. He looked to Nick, who was smiling peacefully, as if this were a regular walk in the woods. He heard the screech of a rocket launcher, the clatter of a machine gun. Dean woke up, clutch, Dean woke up clutching his sleeping bag. The sound of his breath broke an otherwise silent dusk. There was no helicopter overhead. The roar of a chainsaw had, had dripped through the forest to wake him from a nap he didn't know he was taking. He stepped out from his tent, the feeling of being under siege still with him, at odds with the familiar sounding, the surroundings of pine and, Bruce, and spruce. Somehow the serenity made him feel worse. In his dazed state, Half, still half dreaming, he looked around expecting to see Nick, but there was no sign of anyone, just the intermittent sound of the far-off chainsaw. Dean stood up and wiped his face with his cold hands, wandered around the campsite, and finally slumped down on the end of a log. The forest was quickly darkening. He started a fire and held himself against its warmth as he watched new shadows slip in between the trees. He was thinking about Eugenie, wondering what she was doing, how she spent an evening like this on her own. It would be good to stay here a while, but he figured she had a work's wor week's work for him at best. But then he'd have enough. By then, he'd have enough money to keep him going for a month or more if he kept living rough. How long he could keep it going, he had no idea. He didn't want to know. If he, could scrape, if he could scrape together enough food to live on, if he could keep warm and have a place to sleep, that was enough, wasn't it? He held his hands up to the fire, pressing his palms into the heat until he could no longer stand it. He did this over and over as a game, as though this was a sensible way to occupy his mind. The evening wore on with Dean becoming more restless until he remembered the button on his shirt that had come off. He fumbled through his gear, looking for the tin that had held, that held, the, tin, the, held the needle and thread, and sat down, leaning into the light of the fire. He held the needle, his hand firm against his knee, while he took aim with the thread. It was his older sister Victoria who taught him to sew. 
telling him a man ought to know how to work a needle as much as a saw. He missed his sister, now a nurse in Bangor, and wondered if he'd ever see her again. She would not be impressed with his half-hearted attempt trying to get this button on. He muttered to himself as he jabbed at the hole, the thread bending, splitting. He began to lose patience, which he knew would get him nowhere. He tried several times, the thread quivering, until at last success. He guided it through the needle slowly, then tied a knot, his fingers getting cold as the evening damp set in. The fading sun scattered vivid patches of light on the forest floor, and Dean, looking up from the sudden at the sudden illumination, distracted by its beauty, accidentally stabbed his finger. Blood dripped onto a leaf, then trickled off. It was getting too cold for sewing, but he needed to get the button onto his shirt before going to work in the morning. Beside him lay his hunting knife, unsheathed, ready to slice the thread once the button was secure. A flock of starlings flew past, squawking and frenzied, just as he'd known them to be back, at ho- back home in Maine on summer evenings. Those nights, sitting out on his deck, drinking a beer, enjoying the peace of doing nothing, just sitting and listening, not worrying about life and death or a future or where his next, next meal might come from not thinking about civilians or soldiers, nor any kind of duty to which he might feel obligated. And this memory of the quiet and the birds stung him so much that he put the shirt on, the needle still dangling, and shoved those thoughts of home out as if they never really belonged to him. A rustle in the bush jolted him and he grabbed for his gun, his hands scrambling through the debris of clothes, food packets, and utensils that lay around him before he figured out that he no longer had one. Then came the swift realization that it was just a rabbit out in the woods, not an insurgent. Thank you. Thanks, Pamela. That was lovely. So I encourage you to get a copy, and I've got two pens for anyone wants their sign. Um, and <laughs> you're first in line. Um, and thank you again to Os- Oscar and Joanna and all of you for coming. Thank you. And you just heard uh, Pamela Malloy reading from and launching her new book called The Deserters at uh, Novel Idea on October 24th. Again, uh, uh, that was emceed, hosted by Christine McLeod. Up next, uh, from a reading and launch event again at Novel Idea Bookstore, this held on November 15th. And up first in it, here is Carolyn Smart. Reading from Selected Work. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight uh, on our first kind of wintry sort of night, really. So anyway, thanks for coming out. Uh, thanks. Uh, let's give Oscar and Joanna a novel idea a hand for not only this, but everything they do. And two readings tonight. Uh, first up, uh, Carolyn Smart has written seven collection of poet, uh, seven collections of poetry. Three of them are up here, actually. So there, and Corrine over here. 
including Corrine Hooked and the uh, Way to Come Home, as well as a memoir of her childhood at the end of the day. She is the founder of the Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers, poetry editor for McGill Queen's Press, and since 1989 has taught creative writing at Queen's University. Let's bring up Carolyn Smart. whether I should be on the front of the well, I'll stay right here. Um, thank you very much, everybody, and thank you for coming out on such a awful, scary, maybe later on night. <laughs> but it's a pleasure to read before Susan's launch of her book here, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I wanted to start off um, by reading a poem by someone else, someone other than me. I've been doing a lot of thinking in the last little while about work that has gone out of print, particularly women's poetry. And I would like to read um, one of those women, Gwendolyn McEwen, one of the outstanding Canadian poets of all time. Most of her work has been out of print for a very long time, which is totally outrageous. So here is a poem by the stunning Gwendolyn McEwen from her collection, The Shadowmaker. Dark Pines Underwater. This land, like a mirror, turns you inward, and you become a forest in a furtive lake. The dark pines of your mind reach downward. You dream in the green of your time. Your memory is a row of sinking pines. Explorer, you tell yourself this is not what you came for, although it is good here and green. You had meant to move with a kind of largeness, you had planned a heavy grace, an anguished dream. But the dark pines of your mind dip deeper, and you are sinking, sinking, sleeper, in an elementary world. There is something down there, and you want it told. So with that in mind, I wanted to read um, a poem from my collection hooked about someone who in her time was considered by people who knew what they were talking about like uh, Truman Capote uh, to be the finest living author um, in the English language Jane Bowles she is mostly completely forgotten and this is a poem from her point of view it tells her life story it's called Complications Janie Jane Our Bowles, February the 22nd, 1917 to May 4th, 1973. Because I cannot recognize a color, because I am no longer funny, do not mention a bird, the desert, brandy, all the stars at night, Sharifa's kisses, plates of couscous as we knelt close by the brazier, the way we had to bend our heads to pass. I'm a writer's writer's writer, and what was writing but a misery to me? The brawling over detail, syllable by spitting syllable, it's suicide. But here's my story. My nurse dropped me as a baby, and then my father died. I fell again from horseback, but my leg did not heal fine. It was TB in the knee, so I spent two years tied up in Switzerland. 
Coming home, I met Celine, the author, then I knew I was one too, so wrote a novel lost somewhere and found my way to all those village bars. No one knew me on my knees in doorways, my mouth around a man to find the cash to buy my girl some food and proper clothes. No one thinks of ugly girls in bed. Their rustling, frightful eyeballs rolling in their heads. I loved them because nobody else would. I'll talk about him one more time. My father sat and died one night when I was 13 and at camp where I loved those beds like one big family row on row. I wish I had a dormitory everywhere and I never mentioned him again. July night and all those people sleeping happy in a line. Get into position, I'd say. And they would laugh and laugh. Do you love me? I love an ugly girl. Naughty lovely at 15. While I was locked in traction, I was tutored by a Frenchman versed in Greek mythology and venereal disease. Hell, what to do but study Proust in infinite degree. But when I'm home, I've got a stiff knee and a limp. No one talks about the fact I'm Jewish. The aunts and mother all lined up to see how well I dress. And not to be mentioned in some circles is the fact I plain love girls. And plain girls they are, too. Men have no mystery. It's all on the outside. But women are profound, mysterious obscene. I fear sharks and elevators, mountains, dogs, and being burned alive. I'd like to know who doesn't. I cannot look down from a height. I cannot cross a bridge. But there's lots of fun in drinking. My red and stand-up hair, a good long cozy cuddle, and me like olive oil, my long and swinging arms around your neck, my gamine smiles. You think I'm lovely now. But I'll be homely later, filled with sulks and tantrums, my little chaplain limp and broad sophistication. I am all of that. I spoke to a cop in Pittsburgh. It was Christmas Eve and I wore sandals in the snow. Can you please direct me to the nearest cocktail center? I mean, right now. And this is what I need. A long drink in my hand, a cigarette, a superbly shady bar. I found a half-man woman, and we dated for a time, a night, once, a while ago, one evening in the South. I cannot be contained. I want to be contained. We must have said so many things one to the other. Imagine darting of the tongues, confusion. One last good luck before I hopped the train and made my true proposal. Marry me, I said to Paul, though in truth, we're so incompatible, we should live in a museum. He could play damn fine piano. I'm as cold as all I wanted in a man. And when he read my stories, he thought writing just the thing. I specialize in menus, line the parrot's cage with discord, get involved in mischief, underscore the buzz. We want to travel here and there, wild and full of charms. We are famous amongst the famous. Improbable amour, but I truly love my bubble. He brings a suitcase full of ties, just anywhere. 
1948, we came to Tangier. I thought I'd dreamt it. I knew it so damn well. I walked the streets and touched the blue and chalky wash upon the houses and walls. I kind of slake my longing for the town. Once I reached to touch a beautiful and powdered clown because I felt such yearning. It was at a little circus, but I was not a child. In the market, I saw Sharifa. She's that kind, completely beautiful, a little smaller than myself, strong shoulders, legs with lots of hair, skin soft and soft. We went up onto the topmost terrace, looked at all Tangier, the boats and stars, the line of lights along the beach. The wind was cold. Sharifa shivered. I kissed her just a little. Had God seen us, she inquired. I wrote a book, Two Serious Ladies. They said in print, I was the best. They cooed it to my face. Williams, Burroughs, and Capote, all of the above. Good writing is like guilt, but I cannot find that way again. So cook and serve and drink and make them laugh. My hands are busy and strange like a man's. They're soft and boneless, and when you touch them, they just let you in. I eat my pills like candy, and I wash them down with drink, a big, big bowl of goodies near the sink. Sharifa is a witch, they say. I do what she tells me, for she has such rage. And Paul says love is lying. It's a schizophrenic break. His parents never loved him like my mother did. I live on tiptoe, gulping alcohol and angst. And what I love the most is daily life amidst the liars of the souk, the clever pouring of the tea, the dusty green of cumin, wild artichoke and fennel, whispers, bowls of scarlet powder, a kiss upon the cheek, collegianous magic, my wallet open on the floor. Sharifa's eyes that wander here and here. Paul can travel all he wants, write and try to hide from fame, but I will stay and manage my sweet harem. What's the use of a brain if it's not used? The howl of desert wind like some huge and pointless fire. I stare at my writing materials as though they were Nazis, and Sharifa slouches there like Marlon Brando all cigarette and camp. Am I their fag hag, or do pansies love me best? Paul's boys, plus Ginsburg, Auden, and the rest. Let's tell the truth now. Crippy Kike Dyke, that's me. I make them laugh like crazy, bring Paul tea and burger on a tray on time each night. I know a wifely thing or two, and he and I will sit and talk disaster. We enjoy that just the most, and a good cry here and there for the fun of it. My mind, Paul says, is an invention by Kafka, and he is proud and sad to leave me lonely on the sand dunes. Then I turn 40, and I have my stroke. When the inside is dying, there can be a new joy, a joy so false one is shaken with mirth, when the joy is true and the inside alive, one can never feel the same. Dear Mrs. Bowles, you are not coping. 
Go back to your pots and pans and cope. Phenobarbs, like strolling in a smokestack, sniffing clouds. Sepacil, epinutin, melaril, a lovely sounding thing. My teeth grind on and brandied as the swish with Valium, Secanol, and other little pills like Smarties down my throat. Forget my name and get a wig. Do hair tricks for strangers just to get a laugh. Hang my clothes upon my bones and have a fight, drinking all the way to amusant and seizure. Mommy comes to see me. I can no longer hide the fact I'm going mad. My future is the loony bin and blindness leads the way. <coughs> one novel, one play, a few short stories, my legacy of publication, yet they call me famous and beyond compare. I do not know no more, for I embrace the crucifix, a small white bed in Malaga, my home. Sweet sisters tend me there. Paul marked my grave with nothing just the flotsam of a Spanish windy day. He turned away, unhappy man, and surely nothing more to say. Thank you very much. Is Carolyn smart? Let's give her another hand. And you just heard Carolyn Smart reading a selected work at a reading and book launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore on November 15th. Up next in it uh, that evening, here is Susan Gillis reading from and launching her new collection of poetry called Yellow Crane. Up next, Susan Gillis is a Montreal-based poet, teacher, and editor who has lived in the Atlantic and Pacific coasts of Canada. A member of the collective Yoko's Dogs, she is the author of Swimming Among Ruins, Among the Ruins, uh, Volta, and which won the A.M. Klein Prize for Poetry, The Rapids, Whisk, and several chapbooks with uh, Gaspernau uh, Press. Uh, Susan spends a lot of time in rural Ontario where she does most of her writing, Yellow Crane, is her fourth collection of poetry, uh, poetry. Let's bring up Susan Gillis. First of all, thank you, Bruce and um, Carolyn, for cooking up this scheme together on a hot, sunny day in Tamworth. <laughs> a little different from now. It seemed like a good idea, didn't it? <laughs> it is a good idea. Um, and Carolyn, I'm so happy to be reading with you, and I'm glad you read from Hooked because I have a feeling that the first time we ever met was when that book was new and you were reading from it, I believe, in Coburg. Really? I think that's where we wow. met. Yeah. Although it seems like, you know, it, you go way back. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I was really happy to hear that sequence. Thank you. Oscar and Joanna, thank you so much for hosting us. And... Uh, you know, making space for this to happen. It's uh, delightful. And, and of course, all of you for being here um, on this, this night. I, I drove from Montreal, as, as Bruce said, and, and um, 
got here, you know, just before the sleigh bells started ringing, so <laughs> everything is good <laughs> so far. Um, and uh, I also would like to thank the Quebec Writers Federation, who is helping bring me here tonight. Although I sure wish they'd given me a driver. But anyway, <laughs> um, this this book is is shaped largely by looking and and whether I'm. Um, looking from a hammock or the porch of, of um, my place in the countryside around Perth or from the window of my you know third story walk up in Montreal at you know rooftops and grit and whatever um, that act of daily looking is is for me a kind of um, form of, of I don't know prayer or something. Um, it's it's also shaped by reading, um, and if there's a presiding spirit in the book, it would be the Polish poet Czesław Milosz. I didn't say that right. I'm going to have to like take some Polish lessons. I'm going to keep doing this. But anyway, um, so Milosz in his in his you know political in the everyday um, suit which is pretty much everything, um, but also many other writers and artists. Um, and uh, so I thank them. So I beg you, no more of those lamentations. We used to read in old poets about the scent of the earth. Now I walk through rooms holding my cup of coffee, looking into the shadowed street without seeing until a bright puddle arrests me like a doe in a clearing, absolutely still, expanding in its brightness as the sun crosses the parking lot, slowly. And one by one, particulars assemble, grit, muck, rubbish, dirty cars, concrete curb, red brick wall, darker bricks among them, 12 orange tabs on the power lines at the corner, juncture points on the pole and on the wires themselves, the pole gray as a dove's breast, a red slash through a black truck on a white sign, a sky blue poster like a hole in the wall, the beautiful doe releasing my gaze bounds through. So life in the city, <laughs> finds your beauties where you can. Um, so there's two long poems that, that sort of anchor the book and a, and a smattering of shorter lyric poems between them. And I'm just going to bounce around and read five or six um, <coughs> poems from various sections. I don't know that they need much introduction except to say that, you know, one set thinks about... Um, reading and misreading uh, from the vantage point of the hammock, and the other set thinks about reading and misreading from the vantage point of the window in the city. Uh, what it really thinks about is the yellow crane that sort of occupied space in that window for about a year um, that I didn't even know was gone until I saw it passing by on a flatbed truck. In <laughs> <laughs> um, it's there forever, that yellow crane in my mind's eye. Um, okay. On my way to town, I pass a small lake where often in summer I see a small boat at anchor drifting lazily around its mooring, someone from the campground out fishing. On the north side, 
a high cliff of metamorphic rock juts, forcing a bend in the road. Heading east, the lake opens a vista on my right, mist hanging, or blue ripples, or bright pixels of sunlight. Heading west, the dark rock looms. I've seen eagles on this stretch, and storms gathering, and every kind of light. What is the difference between knowledge and memory? Heading home with the car full of groceries, it's along this stretch I'll remember what I forgot, just past the place where brush is growing up through the foundations of an abandoned building. I feel happy when I remember I've forgotten broccoli. (laughs) I'm not so sure about the events of my life. Do I really want to remember them? Susan Sontag thinks maybe not. To make peace is to forget. My old friend says he doesn't remember the thing I'm finally apologizing for. It's meant as a form of kindness, but it makes me furious. <coughs> the only thing I remember about Professor Marcos Dragumis' 1997 lecture in a small, airy library in Athens on the folk music of Crete apart from the scratchy sound of the recordings collected in the field in the 1920s. And being there with Sally Latch, who this very minute is on her way to Samos to help the Greek people with the Syrian refugees. And meeting Eric Davis, who played horn. Sally thought he had a crush on me. It didn't last long. Nevertheless, I learned a few things about philosophy, not to mention language, is an aside. In the aside, Professor Dragumis, noticeably exercised, said, anyone who claims the folk music of Greece has nothing in common with the folk music of Turkey, well, that's just nationalism (laughs) and not the good kind. I could use a bit more of that scratchy sound. I don't know where Eric Davis is now, whether he's still alive or still plays horn or both. And every now and then, I don't know how, maybe a whole lot of sense impressions fire at once. The modes of perception snap, and everything slows. Like Whitman, I think I will do nothing for a long time. Watching the yellow crane Thinking about the book I've been reading, excited and unsure, opened by it. The narrator meets a lovely girl. He says he wishes she could grow up quickly, grow into a girlfriend for his old age. I set the book down. The crane revolves. No, the jib swivels. I feel the need to walk a little. Each time I ride the escalator with my duende, a little voice in my ear says I should walk. Oh, shut up, I say, and grip my duende's hand a little tighter. Every second cell of marum grass under a microscope is a happy face. Well, no wonder. 
Voices leap out as someone opens a door. Suddenly, all the clocks are wrong, and everything that binds me to my life is wrong, and I'm late for breakfast again. Everything's so bright, we never see it anymore. We, that is to say, I, the multiplicity that is I, the compound I, don't, that is to say, action, cut, go back. I go for a walk, and when I get back, my house is reduced to cobweb. Young oaks, hurry up and grow into a house for me. Um, so I'll read two more, two standalone poems. One is, uh, uh, got nothing to do with the yellow crane. <laughs> it's just in the field looking. And the last one, well, I think you'll get it. Field work. Thank you for the water, Joanna. <laughs> I'll take some now. Overnight, soft hollows appeared in the field and a narrow path to the edge of the small wood. Animals bedding down, traveling somewhere, or wind. My dream of gravity carried off by mosquitoes. No gesture is unreadable. Slipping on my mouse-brown felt shoes, I wish the plane the rebels shot down could have hung on an updraft, the way a piece of field fluff hangs on a current of air, suspended as though in a web, not blown apart, but held. We go through life forgetting how tender things can be, that Timothy scent and a pinch of nearly invisible seeds slip inside me and prick my bronchioles. Where is my father now and the little burble he breathed through in his chest? He'd been on the blood machine, which cleaned him while he watched Dragon's Den or slept. Sulin clamped his arm in two places when he was done and twisted the tube awkwardly from the fistula. That vein had burst and been repaired at least once. He fixed on the screen against the pane and turned his gaze to me when he could smile. I leaned into his shoulder and inhaled. Then he sobbed, and stupidly I said, don't be sad, don't be sad, hating what I was saying. Such a wind across the meadow, I should have said, the felled hay and curved rows. My father, who'd held me like a sparrow to his chest. The sunlight here lances, though the swooshing of trees is thoroughly refreshing. Everything seems fine with the world, though terrible things happen. Wind rustles the highest boughs like a cat pawing through a box of tissue paper, travels the room, cooling my legs, nudges the tabs of my hoodie so they jingle lightly. White cigar clouds painted onto the sky. A large bird soars, drifts down on a draft. Su Lin's blue-gloved hands. The sky's the same, the canal the same, the streets the same, the crane, 
the ditches, yard, fences, doors, the gravel road, the shore, the blue hull, sails, the bed, the narrow corridor. All gestures are unreadable. The field meets the grove in a borderland of thorns. I can't bring myself to do anything. And to end on a slightly more up note, <laughs> morning light, my favorite thing in the world, I think. <clears throat> Without mention of blossoms, Milos gets the tree in the poem from translucent to laden with fruit. Years passed, not days, while he slept, and that tree must have flowered many times. In the same way, we turn over mid-dream, or after love, those beautiful hours we know were passed in the company of genius, but have forgotten in the particulars. We know the tree stands for promise and for the desire, which comes much later for atonement. We stand at the west-facing window and let the buildings opposite turn gold, then back to brick. Thank you so much for listening. Susan Gillis, let's give her another hand. And then one more for both Carolyn and Susan. And one final hand for Novel Idea, Oscar Joanne, and also Neil, who's helping us out here tonight. Thank you again all for coming out. And the authors, so there's still plenty of time, would love to chat. I think you kind of were doing that before, now you can resume. How's that? And you just heard Susan Gillis reading from her, during her, her reading, I guess, from her Kingston launch of her new collection of poetry called Yellow Crane at Novel Idea Bookstore on November 15th. Now, we'll have a few minutes at the end of the second hour, in fact, quite a few, to share some calls for submissions and notice of upcoming events. We're also in that part of the year where the it's kind of reversed. The call, it seems like the list of call for submissions has become quite lengthy, and events are a little bit less so, although there will be some resuming again after the first of the year. Uh, but... Uh, I do have about a minute and a half or so, so here before I have some things that need to air before the top of the hour. But before I even do, uh, just I'm going to announce one event because it's happening this evening. Uh, before I do that, I would like to thank you for tuning in to the first hour of today's show. Uh, you have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. And I just want to give you a heads up as well uh, that... Uh, all shows, uh, all of my shows, uh, including today's show, uh, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home at finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And uh, that'll usually go up sometime the evening as early as I can. It just depends on if I have to do something else first. But what I will tell you is there is an event happening this evening. Uh, I hope it's still going on. It's the Douglas Fleur Park. 
Uh, it is uh, Calliope Collective's uh, the longest night celebration. It begins at 6.30. We'll run until 8 o'clock. Uh, there is a Facebook event page for it. Uh, so you can uh, find uh, find it there. I believe it's called a community celebration of light and then slash the longest night. So that should get you there. Uh, but there are a lot of things going on. I hope uh, you can get out to it. They're going to have, uh, again, if the weather doesn't mess it up, uh, puppetry, uh, live drumming, fire spinners, dancers, celebration of light, uh, which honors earth-based traditions. And uh, yeah, sounds like a really cool event. I do have still a few seconds left, so one thing I will do is mention that uh, coming up here on uh, this station on uh, uh, I will go into it in more detail when I have more time in the second hour uh, but I will be on uh, Christmas Day I normally just play Christmas music a selection of Christmas music for two hours from 10 a.m. to noon uh, this coming Tuesday Christmas Day at 10 o'clock what I will be airing instead for the first 80 minutes is an adaptation of Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol. Uh, this was a dramatic reading at the Spire that runs approximately 80 minutes, and I'll have some uh, Christmas. Uh, well, let's just put it this way seasonal at least music uh, or Christmas music uh, for the remaining half hour, the 35 minutes, whatever's left. In uh, from about 11:30 or a bit before on, so. Uh, I hope you can tune in for that. Again, that's coming up at 10 o'clock here on, uh, yeah, CFRC 101.9 FM. Tell you what, let's do this, and that'll take us to the other side. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Do you like waffles? Do you like waffles on a Saturday morning? Do you like things that are good and dislike things that are bad? Then you should listen to Waffles every Saturday morning on CFRC 101.9 FM from 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Everybody likes waffles. I'm David Suzuki. The average lunch or dinner travels 2,400 kilometers to get to your table. Eating local means combating global warming. The future is on your table. Eat your way to a healthier planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. Have you heard of Auntie Anne's Afro-Caribbean Grocery and Beauty Store? 
It's the first of its kind in Kingston. Auntie Anne's features beauty products and groceries from the Caribbean, Brazil, Haiti, Morocco, and more. You can get Afro-Caribbean favorites such as goat meat, roti shells, and other foods and products from back home. So come on down and see Auntie Anne at 846 Gardner's Road or online at www.aagrocerybeautysupply.com. That's www.aagrocerybeautysupply.com. And it is 5 o'clock. Welcome back to the second hour of today's show. Uh, You're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up uh, in this hour, you're going to hear it's going to consume uh, a good portion of it. And again, just leave me a little, some decent room for a change at the end uh, of the hour so I can really get into a number of calls for submissions that are expiring quickly. And uh, d- just a couple of relatively quickly upcoming events. So coming up, uh, I guess I should do the first, though, uh, disclaimer, uh, the usual hourly announcement, I guess. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language. Uh, It's all played in its entirety with content unedited uh, to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So... Let's go ahead and jump into this hour, a third book launch that we're going to air this afternoon. Uh, and coming up in this hour, you'll hear Lindy Machewski reading from and discussing her new book called Out of Ontario Kitchens at her launch event at Novel Idea Bookstore on November 1st. I think I left a word out of that title. We're going to find out here in a second. It just doesn't look right, so... Let's go ahead and just uh, jump in it. This was done again, uh, Novel Idea Bookstore, November 21st. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, And thank you, Oscar and Joanna, for this incredible space and your generosity and hospitality. Let's give them a hand as well. And I'm guessing, uh, with just looking at the crowd and knowing Lindy, that she probably doesn't need a huge introduction. You probably already know, but she is launching her Out of Ontario, Old Ontario Kitchens tonight. Uh, And she will be reading a bit from the book and talking, and she welcomes questions both after and throughout. So, there you go. Let me just do this briefly, though. Lindy Machewski lives in Kingston, is an award-winning author, food writer, food columnist for the Week Standard, and a sporadic but enthusiastic food blogger. Her joys include her family and friends, her large shaggy dog, hiking, uh, foraging, and time spent in the kitchen, cooking, baking, and eating. Let's bring up Lindy Machewski. First of all, thank you all for coming. Um, it's it's such a big deal to come out to a reading. You know, I didn't have any appreciation for how much that meant uh, until I had a book out myself. So thank you for making the effort and being here. It's huge. 
really, really appreciate it. And I know it was hard to find parking tonight because I struggled to find <laughs> parking myself. So Oscar was worried I wasn't good. Um, I'm going to do a short reading, and I would like to do questions and and uh, and comments and whatever you want to do. And I will talk to you a little bit about the food because I did bring a dried apple cake, which is in the book, and a couple of other things from the book. And they tell a bit of a story of the culinary history, so I want to get onto that. Um, if I forget, please remind me. And. Um, some of you have already heard me read from this intro, so forgive me. I'm going to do it again, parts of it anyway, and I would like to read a little bit, too, from, the, from, from further on in the book. <clears throat> in high school history class, I remember rote learning, the dates of battles, the names of the early all-male, all-white explorers, and as the new nation of Canada began to emerge, the names of our first politicians, also all-white, all-male. The only time I perked up was at the mention of pemmican, bannock, maple syrup, salt pork, or dried salted fish, or by how anyone survived winter without electricity, central heat, and indoor plumbing. I was fascinated not by colonial politics, nor the battles fought, nor by the horrendous ransacking of land which was scarcely referenced, but by how indigenous peoples and settlers lived and survived, what they ate, and where their food came from, those most crucial of details that were rarely mentioned. Backtrack a few years earlier and I was a brand new Canadian, my family having just immigrated from England. Decades later, the thing I remember clearly was the profound sense of longing for tastes of a life left behind. For the times I'd spent as a young girl helping my beloved grandfather in his ancient Yorkshire kitchen, Yorkshire kitchen, shelling peas, learning to knead bread dough and roll out pastry for jam tarts, and watching the Yorkshire puddings rise in the oven as the Sunday roast rested on the counter. You can relate, Anne, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Food was one of the most noticeable changes in my life on arrival in Ontario. Suddenly, I was immersed in a world of Wonder Bread and corn on the cob, burgers and hot dogs, Pop-Tarts. I learned very young that how we cook and what we eat, our food, is a powerful symbol of our culture, history, and identity, and one of our most meaningful connections to the past. Food is central to our history. Cooking, too. Cooking is what makes humans unique. It is the truly critical part of our history as a race, the thing that differentiates us from every other species. Cooking connects us to our past, to our bloodlines, and all the way back to our ancient human forebears, likely Homo erectus, whom it is thought started cooking 1.8 million years ago, forever changing the course of human destiny. Food is fundamental, the world's largest industry. Food and cooking are about our very survival as a species. And yet, curiously, we've mostly ignored our culinary history. Perhaps that's partly because for centuries, except in the most exceptional circumstances, it was women who were the keepers of food knowledge. <coughs> it was women who got up and lit the fire in the hearth and toiled and stirred and cooked and baked, who fed babies and kept families alive, women who put down food for long, hard winters and who fed communities through plagues and depressions, famines and wars. <coughs> for the longest time, until the mid to late 1900s, it was women who did the majority of the cooking. I think it's so interesting, the whole male celebrity chef culture that's developed when we've done this forever. <laughs> so not to knock the male chefs, but... The truth was and still is the preparation of food is no small task. That was especially so for the earliest settlers who had access to few ingredients and 
ate only what they could grow, gather, hunt, or otherwise find locally and seasonally, preserved as best they could, given their limited means and even the vessels to do so, cooked on open hearths, and made everything from scratch. In the earliest days, even the grain had to be hand-ground for flour before bread could be made. And the first settlers in Ontario, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. There was not. There was no wheat. There was only the flour they brought with them from England. And when the supplies dwindled, uh, they were planting. They were, they were planting the first fields of wheat. And one of the Ontario. There's so many stories that pertain to Ontario. So many firsts in culinary history that come from Ontario, such as the fact that the first electric oven was developed in Ottawa and patented in uh, 1892 or 1893. Uh, an, an Ottawa engineer by the name of Thomas A. Hearn developed the first electric oven. And the hilarious part of this is we didn't have electricity grids, so it was useless. <laughs> so but he invented the oven and it was another and he patented it. And then it was and it was then it was another twenty or thirty years before we had electricity grids. And actually um, Ontario Hydroelectric of Ontario, as it was first known, was the world's first public utility grid. So, you know, kind of amazing. There's these amazing stories from Ontario that we really haven't told and celebrated, and a lot of them are related to food. And so back to the wheat, um, the first field, field of wed, red fife was planted in Ontario, in Upper Canada. And, and actually, there's a, there's a very female connection to the story because the David Fife, who planted the field of wheat, um, decided that it had gone to rust and it was useless. But there was a small patch of wheat that, that hadn't rusted or hadn't been subject to rust. So um, his Mrs. Fife, um, who only, we only know as Mrs. Fife, rescued this patch of wheat and planted it the following year, saved it. Basically, there was, um, there was some cattle who were, had, had discovered this little patch. So she saved that. And the reason why red fife wheat is so very important to Canadian <coughs> history is... Um, it went on to become the major grain planted in the prairies and is responsible, was hybrid, hybridized to become Marquis, which is the wheat that made Canada the world's greatest wheat exporting nation and was a cornerstone of the economy, Canadian economy, for a very long time. So without that field of red fife wheat that was <laughs> saved by Mrs. Fife... <laughs> um, and did they bring the seed with them? Is that how they could... The seed was actually... The, the, the way they got... The, it was a Ukrainian... The, the original red fife wheat was a Ukrainian wheat with a different name, but when it was planted here, it hybridized with whatever was planted locally. And because it was planted, it had a, it was red in in color, and it was planted on the fife farm. It became known as red fife wheat. And this this seed was rescued by somebody at the side of a dock in in I think it was Ireland, and um, and sent to David Fife because. The guy who rescued it had a friend who was coming to Canada, and he knew David Fife. So that's how the Red Fife wheat got started. But it is actually, you know, it was quite a cornerstone in the economy, and it was quite an important a field of wheat that got planted here. So, sorry, back to the, the back to the book. Um, these are the unsung stories of the women who went before us, our mothers and aunts, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers and so on, of their talent, creativity, thought, care, relentless hard work, and incredible ingenuity in the kitchen. Food runs like a perpetual thread through the lives of generations of women, stretching back to a time we can no longer remember and forward to a time we cannot even imagine. It was women who wrote down the recipes, who wrote, compiled, and annotated cookbooks, who kept diaries with exquisite details of the food they prepared and ate, who passed on the sacred knowledge, the secret, the special code. 
Little did they know that they were quietly recording some of the most fundamental details of history, that is how we ate and lived and survived. So it, when I was looking at these early cookbooks, I was researching uh, primarily from um, cookbooks produced in Canada, manuscript cookbooks, which were the handwritten cookbooks, and also published <coughs> cookbooks. All of the writers were female. And this was one of the only avenues available uh, to women in publishing was to produce a cookbook. And the thing is, those cookbooks floated entire publishing industries. Without cookbooks, the publishers wouldn't even have, wouldn't have been able to publish novels. And that's still, to a certain extent, the case today, that cookbooks are really the backbone of, um, of for a lot, especially for a lot of small presses, cookbooks are the books that actually make them enough money to be able to publish everything else. So, and this was a very female domain. Um, and I think really, another really interesting point when I was doing research that I came across was that, especially in the late 1700s and early 1800s, most families, especially families on the land, would have two books. They'd have a Bible and a cookbook. And the Bible was, you know, they knew the stories from church, but the cookbook was definitely women's territory. And it was a place where they recorded all kinds of amazing and wonderful details, like dates of birth and death of family members and other little notes, you know, whether it was about the food or... So you find these fabulous old notes in the cookbook. And even more exciting, I thought, was that so many young women living on the land, like young girls living on the land, learned literacy and numeracy from the cookbook. Mm -hmm. Not from the Bible, because it was too complicated, mm -hmm. but from the cookbook, because it was practical and they were using it. So they learned to recognize numbers, and it's quite quite remarkable, actually. Um, so I think what I want to do is I want to read you a little bit further on. I want to read you the story of one of the, the early settlers that I, I... I read so many of these diaries, I just thought they were fantastic. Um, just incredible stories of these women that came. So Elizabeth Posthumus Simcoe came in 1791 to Upper Canada. Or actually, it was Canada West at the time, and she was a she was a like a raging character. She was just fantastic. So I want to read you a little bit about her life, and then maybe we'll turn it over to questions and, and discussion. Elizabeth Posthumus Simcoe and Colonel Pickering's salmon chowder. The year was 1791. 25-year-old English artist, writer, and heiress Elizabeth Posthuma Gwillem Simcoe was setting sail from England along with her husband, Colonel John Graves Simcoe, who was on his way to take on his post as the first lieutenant governor of Upper Canada. The couple had two young children, they had their two youngest children in tow, two-year-old Sophia and son Francis, aged three months. Four older daughters, the oldest of whom was only seven, were left behind in England for the full five years the parents would be away. An orphan from birth, her mother had died while delivering her and her father had died before she was born. Elizabeth was given the middle name Posthuma by her mother's sister in recognition of the sad circumstances of her birth. Elizabeth was christened the same day her mother was buried. Raised in an upper class English family, Elizabeth was heiress to one of the greatest fortunes in Britain. By the time she was 16 years old, she was married to John Graves Simcoe. Despite the fact that Elizabeth Simcoe had lived a life of privilege and wealth that included servants and nurses, 
ball gowns, parties and elaborate dinners, and a formal education in music, art, language, and literature, she flourished in Canada and threw herself fully and admirably into life in the colony, never complaining, unfailingly buoyant. She was surprisingly open-minded and egalitarian. She loved her five years in Upper Canada. At the time, Upper Canada was still little more than a vast forest inhabited by a mere 10,000 settlers, many of them loyalists, who were primarily living along the main southern waterways. The indigenous population was not yet accounted for. The Simcoes lived for a time in Niagara before moving to York, now Toronto. John Graves was often away traveling and attending to his duties as Lieutenant Governor, leaving Mrs. Simcoe to fend for herself in the canvas house they called home. While they lived in this canvas house right through Canadian winters, like it's pretty <coughs> remarkable. And, and, and when you read her diary, she loves it. She does not complain. And I think it's so interesting. Like I was complaining coming down the road. <laughs> <laughs> there was no parking and it was so cold. Oh, yeah, it's a good reminder. While in Niagara in January 1793, Elizabeth Simcoe gave birth to her seventh child, a daughter named Catherine. A little over a year later, in April 1794, Catherine was buried in York. And it's just a staggering fact. Like, I read the diary. She makes one reference to the fact that this daughter died. And it was like, they just, honestly, they, things were so hard, they expected. They, they didn't, you know, if you lived, it was, it was a success. And, and if you died, it was just kind of a matter of fact. Elizabeth Simcoe's Sketches, Letters, and Diary publishes the diary of Mrs. John Graves Simcoe, wife of the first Lieutenant Governor of the Province of Upper Canada, uh, are amongst the most important records of, early, of the earliest days of this province. Elizabeth reveled in adventure. She participated in all that Canada had to offer. She admired and respected the Indigenous peoples, desperately wanted to ride in a canoe, was amused by sled dogs, delighted in leaping her horse over logs, loved a party, spoke French whenever possible, constantly searched out new vistas and scenes to paint and sketch, and kept herself busy with her friends, family, and her diary. She was fascinated with the wildlife and deeply curious about rattlesnakes. They keep cropping up over and over in her diary. She mentions them every 15 pages she talks about a rattlesnake. <laughs> whose presence she wrote about over and over. So deep was her interest in the snakes that she once received a gift of two live rattlesnakes in the back of the barrel. She collected native remedies, and she recorded indigenous words in her diary. So this is really interesting. All the way through her diary, when she learns a new word from her neighbors, she writes it, in, she writes it down and records it and starts teaching herself indigenous language, in lang languages. Even the death of her seventh child could not defeat her. Her only complaint was not the cold or the isolation or the time away from her four older children or of missing her homeland or about the tent home in which she lived. But on occasion, she objected to the heat and humidity of the summer, which caused her to suffer. Hardly surprising, one considers that she came from the cool damp of the north of England. Elizabeth felt that her son Francis, for whom Castle Frank in Toronto is named, had a special connection with indigenous people. He was apparently frequently rude to guests, but was unfailingly well-mannered to any indigenous visitors. She wrote about the politeness of the indigenous people, who brought gifts, including a much-treasured beaver blanket for the governor's bed. Captain Joseph Brandt, leader of the Mohawks, was a frequent guest of the Simcoes during their stay in Niagara. To see a birch canoe 
managed with that inexpressible ease and composure, which is a characteristic of an Indian, is the prettiest sight imaginable, she wrote. A man usually paddles at one end of it and a woman in the other, but in smooth water little exertion is wanting and they sit quietly as if to take in the air. The canoe appears to move as if by clockwork. I always wish to conduct a canoe myself, but when I see them manage it with such dexterity and grace, I don't know. A European usually looks awkward in a bustle compared with the Indian's quiet grace in a canoe. On March 19, 1796, she wrote, we dined in the woods on Major Shank's farm lot where an arbor of hemlock pine was prepared, a band of music stationed near. We dined on perch and venison. Jacob the Mohawk was there. He danced Scottish reels with more grace and ease than any person I ever saw and had the air of a prince. This is a common thread in the diaries of all the early female settlers. They admire the indigenous men so much, they've never seen such good-looking men. <laughs> the picturesque way in which he wore and held a black blanket gave it the air of a Spanish cloak. His leggings were scarlet, and on his head and arms, silver bands. I never saw so handsome a figure. <laughs> I think she was in love. <laughs> but perhaps the best contributions of Mrs. Simcoe's diary were her extensive references to food, en route from Quebec to her new home in Upper Canada on December 7, 1791, she recalled eating part of a matif, a bird between a wild goose, the outard, Canada goose, and a tame one. But it was so much better, she wrote, than a tame goose. She dined on moufle, which were moose lips, a delicacy. She wrote, it is a very rich dish with an excellent sauce on toasted thin slices of venison cooked over sticks on the campfire. And she goes on. I, I won't read all of her entire diary to you, don't worry. Um, but she goes on about the food. And it's so interesting because she talks about all of the, uh, 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 the wild game. So there's, a, there's another little bit here. So uh, the black squirrel is large and quite black, she wrote. It is as good to eat as a young rabbit. And on November 20th, 1793, we dined in the woods and ate part of a raccoon. It was very fat and tasted like lamb if eaten with mint sauce. <laughs> <laughs> she, and, but she, she collects the seeds and is really interested in horticulture. Um, they're, they're eating cherries and wild gooseberries and uh, hurtleberries, bilberries, pumpkins as she calls them. Strawberry spinach, which I uh, finally worked out because there's several references in the old diaries to strawberry spinach. It's rhubarb, so they had transplanted rhubarb from England. Wild grapes, they planted watermelons, and of course apples, which were so incredibly important to the uh, Ontario economy or the early Ontario economy, and such an important source of food. So anyway, and speaking of that, there's a, there's a, wild, there's a dried apple cake back there. Um, it's made from a recipe that first appears in the 1800s and appears right up till about 1909, 1920. You see recipes for dried apple cakes. People dried apples. Like everybody had apple trees. There were orchards everywhere. Um, and, and even, uh, and this is uh, Helen Humphreys noted in her book, The Ghost Orchard, that the Algonquians had apple orchards here as early as the 1700s or mid-1700s. Um, so apples were tremendously important. And uh, they were one of the primary sources of sweets during winter. So they dried these apples, they sliced them and strung them and festooned them, hung them everywhere from the rafters, above the fireplaces, and they kept themselves going for a good part of the winter and early spring. 
on dried apples and use them in cakes. This cake recipe is kind of interesting because it calls for, it's, and it's just, to me, it's a really interesting display of culinary history. So it calls for dried apples and molasses, both of which were prevalent and inexpensive. Molasses was the, is still the byproduct of making sugar uh, from either sugar beet or sugar cane. Uh, either way, you get molasses as a byproduct. It was, the, the country was awash in molasses. And it was cheap, it was, uh, so it was used in, you see it in all the old recipes. This cake would have been made originally, of course, in, a, in the hearth, and then later in a cook stove. And then finally, with, when the electric oven comes in, things start to change. We see, we see new ingredients <coughs> and new recipes. So by the 1930s, um, recipes are changing. We're starting to see switches to, to, to the oven. Uh, the electric oven's a bit slower coming along, even though it's been invented here. It is starting to appear, but mostly in hotels and uh, saloons and taverns and things like that. But definitely you can, they could control cooking temperatures better, so things start to change. In the 1930s, when ingredients were scarce in the Great Depression and expensive, an American entrepreneur invented food coloring and also flavorings. So you see this massive change in food around that time. Um, and so some of the squares, matrimonial squares, served at showers in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, they're the ones with the pink icing. And matrimonial squares were also date squares. They refer to any squares basically served at bridal showers and wedding functions. So, um, but you see the, this big change in ingredients and in cooking. We, we have now we have ovens. We can control temperatures. We have new ingredients. We have food coloring, and yeah, big big change. So anyway, um, I'm happy to read more, but I'm sure there are probably questions and comments. Yes. The book is filled with such lovely clippings and like the visual aspects of going through those archives. I know Queen's Library has a really nice uh, collection in their special, their rare books and special collections. Is there anywhere else that you would recommend that was a lovely resource to access? It's just always, I always search for like things in second hand, but it's nice to see collected efforts. Yeah, well I looked everywhere obviously. I, I found the, the things that are in the books. In, in archival collections, in old cookbooks, uh, yeah. in old newspapers. And I did use the Queen's special collection. They're referenced in the book. Um, I, I'm, I, there is actually a fantastic place to look, and that's archive.org. Okay. And it's online, and all, all of the things that are of copyright are there. So you can find almost all the old cookbooks at archive.org. It's, once you find them, you'll start, you'll, you'll one yeah, leads to I the next. Yeah, I used it for other things. I hadn't even thought to look yeah. for cookbooks. That's, That's really probably good. the best. Yeah. Okay. Other right. than this, yeah, other than individual collections. And, and it's I, a beautiful book. It's thank you so much. Thank you. Why did the Simcoe's leave the four older children, daughters home? Because there were no schools. Oh. And, um, and he would be gone the whole time yeah. traveling, yeah. so she had enough to contend with the, <laughs> the younger ones. Yeah, but it's a remarkable thing. I mean, leaving them yeah. for five years, it, just incredible. You think they bring a governess? They did eventually visit. And then in later years, so by the time um, we have a governor general, so by 1867, um, and Lord Dufferin is the first governor general, his wife comes. She's just, oh, these, they were so, they were just phenomenal characters. So Lady Dufferin was just, she was another. She was just like, she was just like um, Mrs. Simcoe. 
she was a firecracker. She, she, you know, she, she wanted to fish and party the entire time she was there. <laughs> 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 she sounds like a, a man. <laughs> 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 That's hilarious. <laughs> but you know, I mean, she, they, they were just such go-getters. They. The, she didn't. She got to Quebec City and she didn't want to leave because she'd never seen a place so beautiful. She wanted to stay there. Yeah. But you know, then they moved on. Of course, came to Ottawa, and and she loved it. And um, but these, these like her diary too, just absolutely phenomenal. She talked about food a lot, of course, but she talked about fishing. There are entire entries where she'll this like a list of who caught how many fish and what the weights of the fish were. But um, my favorite bit of her and all of them, like I loved all of these women. They were just phenomenal. But my favorite bit about Mrs. Simcoe was how she opens her diary, and I, 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 you were at Kings and Writers Fest where you would have heard this, but um, she opens her diary, for those of you who haven't heard this before, with the, the, the three words, uh, 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 which just struck me as if it was somebody who wrote it yesterday, not in 1867. She's on the boat coming from England, and she has her baby. I think she has only her baby with her. The rest are coming separately. And the, the baby is the only person on the boat who's not seasick. So the baby is demanding attention and wants, you know, to be fed and to be looked after and played with and, you know, and everybody is so seasick, nobody can look after the baby. So she opens her, her diary with this. But also she's another person who, reading her diary makes you fall in love with Canada all over again. Like it really, um, you know, if if we're disillusioned and fed up, you read those early women that came here and what they had to say and how stoic and fabulous they were and what they had to say about how much they loved this land and the countryside and the and all it had to offer. And they talk endlessly about the food, so it's just, you know, fantastic resource. I think I've said way too much on that. I, I hate to think I mean, these, these people were moneyed and, and uh, in a upper class. It's true. So they lived in a canvas tent. <laughs> and I hate to think of the women yeah. who couldn't cope. Who well, it's true. And, and even just, it's true. It's true. It's true, but they didn't write diaries, so we no, have a lot less no. information about them, right? But, I mean, there were people like Susanna Moody yeah. who had been gentry, but her family were no longer gentry, right? So they, right? they were very, very reduced circumstances. And they came here, and when Susanna Moody uh, first came to Ontario, they settled just outside of Coburg. And you, you probably know the whole story, but okay. So, so for the rest of you who don't, and, and many of you probably do, but her, her story is also fantastic. So she's a member of the what are known as the literary Strickland family. I think six of the eight children became authors, um, and Catherine Partrail was Susanna Moody's sister. They wrote early books, really interesting early books about life in Upper Canada. Um, when Susanna Moody moved here, oh my gosh, what a disaster! So first of all, um, she I think it's the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s. She, um, her, her husband finds an old friend immediately, as soon as they get here, who's got the egg. Everybody had the egg, the A-G-U-E, which was a, a, was a form of malaria. Did somebody, did I say it wrong? Somebody correct me? It's the egg you. thank you, okay, egg you. Well, uh, you know, it's one of those words you read over and over and over, and in my head I read it as egg and think, everybody has the egg you, thank you. Um, so, he picks this guy up and brings him along, and they don't have a house to live in, 
and he uh, he he's he's a really bad businessman. He's very disorganized. Everything he does is a calamity. They end up in he buys a cabin unseen on a piece of land just outside of Port Hope, and when they get there, the cabin doesn't. I think it has one window and it doesn't have a door. And a cow and a calf have been living in it. <laughs> there is no furniture except for, miraculously, a cradle. And they have a baby. And they have a maid. And they have Tom, who has the ague. <laughs> and they're moving into, like, a cow. I think it's like a 12 by 12 cabin. And they've got nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> the first thing they have to do is clear out all the manure. That's the first task. And then try and find a window for the... I mean, just unbelievable. She's and she's there with her big skirt on, yeah. the top of yeah. the wood. Yes. Yeah. And her baby under one arm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the main copy of Scarlet takes off because she can find better work with, you know, wealthier people, right? So, you know, there's poor Susanna Moody. But she makes it. What, what year was that? Yeah, let's look that up, shall we? <laughs> Thank you. I think it's 1830s or 1840s, but we'll, we'll find out because in, she's in here. Oh, Google it. Making the flight. Yeah. No, we are not going to Google. <laughs> That's Look it up shocking. In the index. Yeah. Yeah. The index no, she's right here. So, <laughs> let's see. That's a very good question. Did I write it down? Yeah. My, in my head, I have her in the 30s and 40s. 1831. I have a relative woman who went with her husband up to the Muskoka, what's the Muskoka area, in 1867. Right. And so I have his diary, not hers. And they would be early because the... There was the, nobody. They were the first... Exactly. Their child was the first white baby born in that In the county. settlement, yeah. And, and she it, had that baby in March in the snow. <laughs> yeah. And there'd be no, there'd be no supplies coming through. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a story further along on page 118 about um, a guy by the name of Ned Hummel who was the first settler in the township of South Hemsworth, which is just south of North Bay. And the land had only just been surveyed. So they were surveying yes, Muskoka's yes, and then... The roads and then, were... Right, and there were no roads. And so he goes to live in South Hemsworth Township, and they have the first child in the settlement. And at one point, this guy walks. He, does, he makes a 24-mile round-trip walking to try and buy flour. Yeah. Uh, he finds no flour when he gets to the store, so he continues another 12 miles walking to, f to yeah. find flour. Finds no flour at the second store, but the second store they have soda crackers, so he buys all the soda crackers and then walks home. And it's, you know, it's a, this phenomenal, how, uh, I have it in a 38.5 mile round trip he makes, all he gets is soda crackers. And there are no roads. He's like, you know, he's going yeah. over dirt tracks and through marshes and swamps well, that's and what they did. in the it was north. It's like a two-day walk yeah. from what's equivalent of Gravenhurst. Yes, to exactly. Lasso, you know. Yeah, just incredible. But then things change so fast because he he moves there in yeah. eighteen. Uh, I think it's 1876. Yeah, 1878. He moves there, <laughs> and then by 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 the late 1800s, early 1900s, the railway has come through. The Grand yeah. Trunk Railway has come through. Uh, Trout Creek, which is the little local town, had become a boom town. They called it Little Chicago. There were apparently, because uh, there were laborers coming in to work the lumber camps uh, and, and making packets of money and then taking the train out, they stopped in Trout Creek and apparently it was just rife with drunkenness and murders <laughs> and just crazy behavior, right? Just, anyway. Any more questions? No. 
<laughs> Which is your favorite recipe? Mm. Oh, that would be like picking your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is here tonight? <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing because, like, I have to say, this is all. Hi, Marianne. <laughs> it's all pre-industrial food. And what really shocked me when I was making it was how good everything was. Like, you know, it's just simple and good. So I know this is a very, like, I love both children type of answer. <laughs> but, but I do, I do, I mean, like in the savory, it's really so hard to go wrong with torture, right? And, and torture is a great story, too, because... Um, the, the, there were a lot of people from the north of England settled Upper Canada and of course there were also a lot of French because the French were here before and that, that meat pie culture belongs in both places <laughs> it's a real overlap so you know I think I, it belongs to it belongs to both cultures although we you know typically associate Torchier with, um, with Quebec and with France well no with French culture I guess I like, even the recipe, okay, this is crazy, but there's a recipe at the beginning of the book for a, a, a bun called Wigs, and it was it came from the cook Not Mad, and for, I think most of you probably will know, if you're here, you probably have an interest in this kind of thing, but the cook Not Mad has been uh, credited with being the first English uh, cookbook in Canada. It was an American cookbook, basically, with a Canadian cover and a Canadian publisher, but it was published here in Kingston in 1831, so typically regarded as the first English cookbook in, in Canada. There's a recipe in there, it's two lines, it's for a bun called wigs. You wouldn't even know it was a bun, it's just called wigs. And I was, I wasn't really ambitious enough to make these, but I went to a, I went to a dinner where, uh, with a woman who specializes in cooking food from the 17 and 1800s, and she made wigs in the fire from the two line recipe, and which I've adapted in here. And those buns were the best buns I've ever had in my entire life. They were so good. Yeah. Read the recipe. Read the recipe? Yeah. I'd love to read a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ellen. Like, yeah. I want to hear it tomorrow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Let me just find it. And you know, when they came, they didn't even have yeast, right? Baking soda hadn't been, wasn't marketed yet. Baking powder hadn't been invented. Ye commercial yeast was not yet a thing. Like it's just remarkable. They had to make everything from starter, right? They had to find the stuff to make the starter. It's just you know, and and like we have the audacity to complain. We're too yeah, busy and yeah. this and that. Okay, here it is. Wigs, page twenty-two. For anybody who wants to read along with me, <laughs> wigs or wigs, and this is exactly how it appeared, spelled with an H or with a one pound flour, four ounces butter, four ounces of sugar, half a pint of milk, three eggs, teacup of yeast. No instructions. <laughs> That's the recipe. No, no. 20 minutes at 3.50. Yes, oh, because they couldn't do it 20 minutes at 3.50. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. What would they do? And they probably took the one. The so the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, Check on occasion, I guess. Yeah. It, it really, it's not even two lines. It's like a line and two oh, yeah. words. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but in the in the cook not mad. That sounds yeah. like a yeah. well, Okay, so that's a good point. That's a, tea that's a very good point. The yeast, a teacup. So a teacup was three quarters of a cup. Like, because yeah. everything was smaller, right? Hens' eggs. Hens were smaller. Eggs were smaller. Teacups were smaller. Um, the, 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 the three quarters cup of yeast would be starter. 
because they didn't have commercial yeast yet. So it's like basically sourdough starter. And that's what they mean. Yeah, I included an adaptation with all the instructions for those of you who want to make the wigs are really good. The dried apple cake's a favorite too. But honestly, I didn't make a thing that I didn't love. And I just think it's really interesting. Pre-industrial food is just, it's just more wholesome. Yes, Deb. I have a question. Good. Given the romaine lettuce scare. Mm, <laughs> good point. Um, do you ever come across people saying that when you think there was no refrigeration, food would be salted, dried? Salted, everything was, yes, salted. So Oh, there there a, ever, did you ever come across an account where a woman would say, my family was ill? Any of that? I think Anybody they were ill a lot. I think they were probably ill a lot. I mean, they didn't even have mason jars, right? Those come along yeah. mid-1800s. Um, I think they were probably sicker than we have reports of. And it, it might be have been less likely in, in the kind of the gentry households where there were probably somewhat, you know, they had, they probably had somewhat better standards. They might have at least had clean water. Water was delivered for most of the 1800s by water carriers, and right up until the early 1900s, um, you didn't drink, uh, you didn't drink from your own tap, like it wasn't, your, your supply wasn't secure. So water was delivered in the water carters, and there were also ice um, ice carters who brought the ice around for the ice boxes. And there's a stat in here somewhere. I don't know where quite where it is, but it staggered me. And I, I did double check it. it. It's something to the effect that, like, in 1950, I think it's, oh, I know where it is, refrigerator cookies. Icebox cookies, because they were called icebox cookies until everybody got refrigerators. I wish somebody could find the icebox cookie recipe for me. That would be good. Because this stat's kind of amazing. Yeah, here we are. In 1941, a mere 20.9% of Canadian households had a refrigerator. By 1951, nearly 50% of households had made the change. And by 1967, an estimated 97.2% of households had a refrigerator. So, you know, but when, when you're looking at... 1951, only 50% of households had a refrigerator. They were still using ice boxes. You know, like it's it's a it's a big change. Like we can't even they imagine all, that. They would be shopping every day, though. Absolutely, well. yes. somebody was responsible. Women, no women were responsible no, for the dinner. No, 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 no. But they did no, have mason jars, and a lot of food was canned. Eighteen after 1858. But you're talking about refrigerator cookies. Yeah, yeah. And they had mason <laughs> jars, and I mean, I know our pantry was filled with with canned preserved and fruit. It was a big part. Oh yeah. Of of most women's responsibility was to put down food for the winter. Yeah. If you didn't, like winter, pover winter poverty and winter starvation were a very real thing. Yeah. And you know, the, when the Moody's came, the Moody's arrived in October, like probably the, wor the last boat yeah. to come through. And they had nothing for the, that first winter that they were here. They would have survived purely on, on, on charity and, and likely on salt pork and whatever they brought with them. Um, there is a recipe for smoking meat in here. It calls for a sugar. Oh, sorry, I'll get to you one second. It calls for a. It's one of the ones I didn't make. It calls for a sugar hogshead, which is a large sugar barrel, the, the biggest of the sugar barrels, 
and you were to put a bunch of, I think it was hickory bark chips in there, and then a considerable portion of dung. <laughs> and then you put your meat in and smoke with the meat. <laughs> so I just think maybe they were hardier. Exactly. They had a to they built up a tolerance yeah. too. Still, I don't know how they would have gotten on with our romaine. So, do they have measuring cups at a certain point? When do they have those? Because my grandmother's recipes would say butter the size of an egg, things yeah. like that. And I did a conversion chart at the back of the book so that uh, for the recipes that are that way. Um, uh, by the 1920s, we're converting to standardized measurements. Okay, so I'm talking about way before that. And into the 1930s and 40s, everything starts yeah. to become standardized to, to cups. Although, you know, it's a, it's a little known fact that our cups aren't actually standardized. The American cup is different, a different size than the Canadian. Yeah, we use the imperial cup, and it can sometimes make a difference in a recipe, especially if you're baking something. Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot to say, haven't I? I think. And Joanna, thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you too for hosting. Thank you so much for having the lunch. And you just heard uh, Lindy Machewski's uh, reading talk and discussion at the launch of her new book. And I noticed that as I, I it didn't sound right when I introduced it uh, ahead of the reading here on the air. Uh, it seems I made the same mistake that night, or I, I corrected myself then. So, yeah, But her new book is called Out of Old Ontario Kitchens, and uh, that happened on November 21st at Novel Idea Bookstore. And I will have a few minutes of, in fact, uh, yeah, let's just do this first, and then we're going to come back. I do have a few minutes of... Uh, of uh, Announcements, but do stay tuned because I had mentioned at the bottom of the first hour that uh, the longest night uh, uh, winter solstice celebration that was supposed to happen in Douglas Fleur Park uh, has been moved. So as soon as in like in about three, uh, two and a half, three minutes, I will give you the new uh, the full details. It is still happening, but it's going to be happening indoors. So stay tuned for that. I'll announce that first right after these. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood, in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston, Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Do you like to dance? 
Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let the hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. The Youth Diversion Program is a charitable organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time take responsibility for their actions. For further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. This is the opera. Hello, I'm David Smith, and I'd like to invite you to explore the exciting world of opera with me every Sunday at 11 a.m. here on CFRC. We'll listen to opera excerpts, full-length operas, and profiles of artists past and present. Please join me every Sunday from 11 till 1 for This is the Opera. Listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, first, again, I said I was going to have a few minutes here. I'm going to throw a little music on the show today, too, as kind of a lead out. of the show, but uh, I do have a few minutes here for music, so our for uh, upcoming events and calls. The first thing, though, as mentioned, I had mentioned again. There's a Facebook uh, page for it, so it's titled "The Longest Night Community Solstice Celebration." I had mentioned in the first hour again that it was originally supposed to happen in Douglas Fleur Park, where it usually does. But here is a pinned post in there. I just pulled the event notice up, and it says, Update, please join us at Next Church, 89 Coburn Street. Uh, We've had to move the event indoors to rainfall warning for tonight. The show will start at uh, 6.30. We'll perform a second run, it says, if we we hit capacity 
it says, come in and join us for hot chocolate and cider. Uh, release what you don't want to take with you into the next season and enjoy an amazing theatrical performance starring your community. So there you go. Uh, that is the latest update. And so... Uh, now you know it's still happening. It's just happening indoors again, six thirty to eight thirty or to eight o'clock. Maybe a second run if uh, there's a capacity, and uh, it will be happening at uh, uh, next church at. And let me get that address again. I think it was eighty nine Coburn. Yes, it is eighty nine Coburn. So. Enjoy yourself there. It will be a lot drier inside uh, than it would have been otherwise. Uh, the other event I wanted to mention is just a listening event, really, and it's coming up again. I just briefly mentioned it, but I'll go into more detail here. Uh, it's uh, coming up next Tuesday, Christmas Day, uh, uh, December 25th. It will run from 10 a.m. until 12 p.m. Uh, it's just uh, two hours that I normally choose to play Usually Christmas music, but this year I have, I recorded on December 9th at the Spire, I recorded a dramatic uh, reading, an adaptation of Charles Dickens' novella, A Christmas Carol. Uh, so uh, reading in that event were Peter Aston, Michelle Mellon, Donald Mitchell, William Mitchell, Adele Mitchell, Wendy Luella Perkins, and Charlie Walker. Uh, it's about an 80-minute uh, reading, uh, and I will begin that almost immediately after 10 o'clock. Uh, so uh, then uh, for the rest of uh, from basically 1130 on, maybe uh, I will probably play uh, seasonal or Christmas music to take us to noon and take us out of that two-hour slot. Uh, so you can hear it. Uh, obviously, if you're local, you can hear it right here at CFRC 101.9 FM or online www.cfrc.ca as either a live stream or if you uh, want to hear it later in the day, can't hear it then, uh, you can find it in our archives at that same address, www.cfrc.ca. And that is the only event uh, coming up next week. I will mention there will be one event closing next week, and uh, local photographer Carolina Rojas is uh, exhibiting her work at Salon 296. Uh, so, and it is there... From Tuesday to Friday, from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m., runs until the 29th, and Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., of course, the holidays, you would probably have to call them. So call Salon 296 and find out what when their hours are uh, this coming week. Uh, it may be different. Uh, I'll get into a couple of calls. There are two calls, actually, and that's probably all I'm going to have time for, if even. You know what? I'm not. Uh, because I am quickly running out of time here. I don't know where it goes. There's still time. I will tell you there are two calls uh, uh, that will be expiring very closely after the next uh, uh, the next show. So uh, if you write poetry or short fiction or literary essays or book reviews, start working on those now, and then I'll tell you where you, the, you can go with them next week. What I do want to do is thank uh, thank you for 
tuning in to the show today. You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce. Here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6, we do stream live online, www.cfrc.ca. Coming up right after this show, you are going to hear two hours of East Coast music with Rob Carnell. I'd encourage you to stick around for that. And in a show called Saltwater Music, got a little Mazzy star to take us out of here this afternoon. Have a wonderful holiday next week, and uh, have a happy new year. Just one thing